Welcome to Excellent Excerpts. This is episode five. I'm Doug Jones. In looking over today's excerpts, I realized that they all had something to do with irony in one way or another. So let's start with a poem that involves irony. This is a poem by Richard Wilbur, museum piece. The good gray guardians of art patrol the halls on spongy shoes, impartially protective though perhaps suspicious of Toulouse. Here dozes one against the wall, disposed upon a funeral chair, a Degas dancer pirouettes upon the parting of his hair. See how she spins, the grace is there, but strain as well is plain to see. Degas loved the two together, beauty joined to energy. Edgar Degas purchased once a fine El Greco, which he kept against the wall beside his bed to hang his pants on while he slept. In this episode, I'll be reading excerpts from the following texts. The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory by Jesse Walker. Ironic Life by Richard Bernstein. How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America by Heather Cox Richardson. And finally, Wrestling with the Divine, A Jewish Response to Suffering, by Shmuley Boteyek. The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory, by Jesse Walker. Published by Harper Perennial. Jesse Walker is the books editor of Reason Magazine and the author of Rebels on the Air, an alternative history of radio in America. I'll be reading an excerpt from Chapter 1. The Paranoid Style is American Politics. On January 30, 1835, as Andrew Jackson exited a congressman's funeral, an assassin drew a weapon and pointed it at the president. The pistol misfired. The gunman pulled a second weapon from his cloak. Though loaded, it too failed to fire. The cane-wielding Jackson and several bystanders subdued the would-be killer, an unemployed house painter named Richard Lawrence. Lawrence later informed interrogators that he was King Richard III, that Jackson had killed his father, and that with Jackson dead, money would be more plenty. He was judged insane and committed to an asylum, where he died three decades later. Lawrence was a lone nut. Or at least that was the official story. It wasn't long before two witnesses filed affidavits claiming to have seen Lawrence at the home of the Mississippi Senator George Poindexter shortly before the attack. Poindexter was a noisy opponent of the Jackson administration, and pro-Jackson newspapers accused the senator of plotting the president's murder. So did Jackson's allies in Congress, who quickly convened an investigation. Jackson himself told bystanders after the assault that the shooter had been, quote, hired by that damned rascal Poindexter to assassinate me, unquote. Some of Jackson's critics countered by suggesting that the president had staged the assault to gain public support, and that this explained why both weapons had failed. And many Jacksonians pointed their finger at John Calhoun, the South Carolina senator and former vice president, arguing that if he had not been directly involved in the assassination attempt, he had at the very least incited it with a speech 
denouncing Jackson as an American Caesar. When the Republican writer John Smith died, described the crime 29 years later, he saw an even more devilish plot at work. Calhoun might not have been directly involved in the assault, Dye conceded, quote, whether this man was induced to attempt to murder the president by listening to his defamer making speeches in the Senate, or whether he was secretly hired to assassinate him, God alone can determine, unquote. But Dye believed that Calhoun had been a part of a larger force, the slave power, that would have benefited if Jackson had been put in the ground. And the slave power, Dye informed his readers, was more than willing to kill a powerful man to get its way. In 1841, for example, President William Henry Harrison told Calhoun he wasn't sure he was willing to annex Texas, which Southerners wanted to add to the Union as a slave state. Harrison promptly died. Officially, the cause of death was pneumonia, but Dye was sure that arsenic was to blame. Nine years later, Dye continued, President Zachary Taylor opposed the slave power's agenda in Cuba and the Southwest, and so he was killed by the same poison. And when President-elect James Buchanan prepared to make some appointments of which the slaveocrats disapproved, Dye declared he narrowly survived one of the most elaborate assassination plots ever conceived. On February 23, 1857, according to Dye, Southern agents poisoned all the bowls containing lump sugar at the National Hotel in Washington, D.C. Southerners, he explained, drink coffee. Coffee drinkers use pulverized sugar, so the southern diners would be spared and the tea-drinking northern diners, including Buchanan, would be wiped out. The future president barely survived the illness that followed. Intimidated by the attempted assassination, Dye wrote, Buchanan became more than ever the tool of the slave power. There is little evidence for Dye's explosive charges. You can make a case that Harrison's doctors did more to hurt than to help the ailing president, but no more than conjecture supports the idea that anyone deliberately killed him. Coroners debunked the belief that Zachary Taylor had been poisoned when his body was exhumed in 1991, and Buchanan was not even present in Washington on February 23, 1857, though dysentery did break out at the hotel when Buchanan stayed there a month earlier and again when he returned for his inauguration. Today, the outbreaks are usually attributed to a sewage backup that contaminated the inn's food and water. But at the time, several stories circulated blaming poisoners for the illnesses, with the suspects ranging from a Chinese cabal to a band of homicidal abolitionists. Inconveniently for Dye's tea and coffee thesis, the dead included a Southern congressman, John Quitman of Mississippi. But when Dye's book, The Adder's Den, was published in 1864, the country was at war with the South, and when a new edition appeared two years later, under the title History of the Plots and Crimes of the Great Conspiracy to Overthrow Liberty in America, the nation was still reeling from the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. In that atmosphere, a book that feels like a 1970s conspiracy movie set in the antebellum era received a respectful notice in the New York Times and was excerpted in the Chicago Tribune. Republican papers praised it in Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Trenton, and New York City, and in Pennsylvania, even the Democratic Easton Express proclaimed it the most powerful book of this century. Nor did Dye invent his theories from nothing. He drew on rumors that had been floating through Whig and Republican circles for years. 
after Lincoln was elected, well before Dye's book appeared, several supporters of the incoming president sent letters warning him to watch out for the plotters who had killed two of his predecessors. Quote, General Harrison lived but a short time after he was installed in office, unquote, one concerned citizen pointed out. And, quote, General Taylor lived but a short time after he took his seat. You, sir, be careful at the king's table what meat and drink you take, unquote. Another letter informed Lincoln that, quote, I have often heard it stated by physicians that it was an undoubted fact that our last two Whig presidents, General Harrison and Taylor, came to their sudden and lamentable ends by subtle poisons administered in their food at the White House, unquote. After Lincoln died, at least two prominent ministers, George Duffield of Detroit and William Goodwin of Connecticut, work the supposed murders of Harrison and Taylor into their sermons. Reverend Henry Ward Beecher not only invoked their alleged assassinations in an article for the New York Ledger, but added the anti-secessionist Democrat Stephen Douglas to the list of victims, writing that he had been killed because his position in the party made him one of the most efficient champions against the rebellion. During the effort to impeach Lincoln's southern successor, President Andrew Johnson, Representative James Mitchell Ashley of Ohio brought up the same old accusations, declaring that Harrison, Taylor, and Buchanan had been poisoned for the express purpose of putting the vice presidents in the presidential office. And in May 1868, an extraordinary article in the New York Tribune managed to out-die, die, accusing a Democratic conspiracy of engineering the city's malaria outbreaks. After commenting that Zachary Taylor fell under the malarious vapors of Washington and died because he was prone to acting honestly and straightforward, the Tribune writer claimed that Washington in subsequent years was free of malaria, that is, for Democrats. But when the new Republican Party began to gain strength and it was possible that they might become the ruling power in Congress, the water of Washington suddenly grew dangerous. The hotels, particularly the National, became pest houses, and dozens of heretics from the democratic faith grew sick almost unto death. The contagions continued until Lincoln put the walls and springs of the capital under care of loyal soldiers, ending the outbreaks. But after Lincoln was deposed, the pattern returned. Right before the vote to impeach Johnson, we had a return of that bad weather and two or three senators, Republicans, mind you, are prostrated with sudden illness. What does it mean? Why does it happen that whenever the current sets against the master demon of slavery, and never at any other time, we find the air and the water and the whiskey of Washington full of poison. The assassination theorists weren't the only Americans worried about conspiracies of slaveholders. Dye didn't coin the phrase slave power. The term was common currency in the North, where it was used to describe the political influence of the planter elite. This was not in itself a conspiracy theory but it often adopted a conspiratorial coloring. In the words of the historian Russell B. Nye, the slave power had an alleged agenda to extend slavery to the territories and free states, possibly to whites, and to destroy civil liberties, control the policies of the federal government, and complete the formation of a nationwide ruling aristocracy based on a slave economy. Lincoln himself believed that he could clearly see a powerful plot to make slavery universal and perpetual. And in his famous House Divided speech, he engaged freely in conspiratorial speculation. 
Senator Henry Wilson, later to serve as Ulysses S. Grant's vice president, put the idea bluntly, quote, slavery organized conspiracies in the cabinet, conspiracies in Congress, conspiracies in the states, conspiracies in the army, conspiracies in the navy, conspiracies everywhere for the overthrow of the government and the disruption of the republic, unquote. Meanwhile, Southerners had elaborate conspiracy theories of their own, blaming slave revolts, both real and imagined, on the machinations of rebellion-stoking abolitionists, treacherous land pirates, and other outside agitators. It was a paranoid time. In America, it is always a paranoid time. Pundits tend to write off political paranoia as a feature of the fringe, a disorder that occasionally flares up until the sober center can put out the flames. They're wrong. The fear of conspiracies has been a potent force across the political spectrum from the colonial era to the present, in the establishment as well as at the extremes. Conspiracy theories played major roles in conflicts from the Indian Wars of the 17th century to the labor battles of the Gilded Age, from the Civil War to the Cold War, from the American Revolution to the War on Terror. They have flourished not just in times of great division, but in eras of relative comedy. They have been popular not just with dissenters and nonconformists, but with individuals and institutions at the center of power. They are not simply a colorful historical byway. They are at the country's core. Ironic Life by Richard Bernstein, published by Polity Press. Richard Bernstein is Verilist Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York. I'll be reading an excerpt from Chapter 1, and this is Bernstein's description of Jonathan Lear's view of an ironic life. Lear's Case for Irony Jonathan Lear lays out his views on irony in A Case for Irony, based on his Tanner lectures. Lear seeks to break through routine understandings of irony and routine understandings of ourselves, and to make clear what irony is and why it matters. From the outset, he acknowledges that his sources of inspiration are Kierkegaard and Plato, more specifically Plato's portrayal of Socrates. For these thinkers show us that irony is fundamental to understanding the human condition. Lear tells us that Kierkegaard has everywhere been my teacher. Socrates was his teacher. But what Kierkegaard learned from Socrates is itself a source of confusion. Lear's distinctive approach to irony takes as a point of departure a single sentence from Kierkegaard's journal, written on December 3, 1854. Quote, To become human does not come that easily. Unquote. The full entry from which this sentence is quoted, reads, In what did Socrates' irony really lie? In expressions and turns of speech, etc.? No, such trivialities, even his virtuosity in talking ironically, such things do not make a Socrates. No, his whole existence is and was irony. Whereas the entire contemporary population of farmhands and businessmen and so on, all those thousands, we're perfectly sure of being human and knowing what it means to be a human being. Socrates was beneath them all, ironically, 
and occupied himself with the problem, what does it mean to be a human being? He thereby expressed that actually the treban, the drives, of those thousands was a hallucination, tomfoolery, a ruckus, a hubbub, busyness. Socrates doubted that one is a human being by birth. To become a human or to learn what it means to be human does not come that easily. Lear distinguishes the experience of irony from the capacity for irony, and he distinguishes both of these from what Kierkegaard calls ironic existence. Lear introduces several distinctions in order to explicate what he means by the experience of irony. Following Christine Korsgaard, he tells us that we constitute ourselves by our practical identities. A practical identity commits me to norms that I must adhere to in the face of temptations and other incentives that might lead me astray. Practical identities tend to be formulated as variations of social roles. Each of us has many practical identities. I am a father, a husband, a teacher, and a citizen. Normally, I acquire and occupy a practical identity unreflectively, but I may, for a variety of causes and or reasons, reflect on what such a practical identity involves. What does a specific practical identity require me to do? What does it mean or what ought it to mean to be a Christian, a teacher, a citizen, or a businessman? Socrates in Plato's Republic asks Cephalus, What is the greatest good you receive by being wealthy? Cephalus answers Socrates reflectively, without any trace of irony. So being reflective or critical about one's practical identity does not necessarily involve irony. The reflective-non-reflective distinction does not capture the experience of irony. So what precisely is the experience of irony, and how is it related to practical identity? Here we need to introduce Kierkegaard's idea of pretense, but not as make-believe. He is using pretend in the older sense of put oneself forward or make a claim. Pretense in this non-pejorative sense goes to the very heart of human agency. When I am asked, even in the simplest and most straightforward cases, what I am doing, I answer by making a claim. Why are you bending down? I am tying my shoelaces. But once we introduce this idea of pretense and distinguish it from the aspiration that is embedded in the pretense, then the gap opens for the possibility of irony. Quote, The possibility of irony arises when a gap opens between pretense as it is made available in a social practice and an aspiration or ideal which, on the one hand, is embedded in the pretense, indeed which expresses what the pretense is all about, but which, on the other hand, seems to transcend the life and social practice in which the pretense is made. That pretense seems at once to capture and miss the aspiration. Unquote. The key phrase in the above passage is the possibility of irony. For even when there is a gap between pretense and aspiration embedded in the pretense, there may not yet be the experience of irony. This gap may be the occasion for non-ironic reflection on the disparity between pretense and aspiration. If I claim to be a Christian, but don't think that I need to be concerned about the poor, 
Someone may confront me and claim that I am not a Christian because I fail to take seriously the aspiration or ideal that is embedded in the claim to be a Christian. There is a gap or disparity between pretense and aspiration. If I am challenged, I may reflect on my practical identity as a Christian and may even reform my conduct. So where does irony come in? Consider what Lear takes to be Kierkegaard's fundamental ironic question. In all of Christendom, is there a Christian? Or as Lear rephrases it more bluntly, among all Christians, is there a Christian? Kierkegaard, Lear tells us, used Christendom to refer to socially established institutions of Christianity, the ways in which understandings of Christianity are embedded in social rituals. Although on the surface, the above question is similar to a tautology, we don't hear it that way. We understand that the question asks whether amongst all those who understand themselves as Christian, there is anyone who is living up to the requirements of Christian life. Is there a true, genuine, authentic Christian? Using the language of pretense and aspiration, we are asking whether among those who pretend or make a claim to be a Christian, there is anyone who is living up to the aspiration embedded in this pretense. But once again, even when we interpret Kierkegaard's question in this manner, it may not provoke the experience of irony. The ironic question on its own is neither necessary nor sufficient to generate an experience of irony. To grasp the philosophically significant sense of irony is to focus on precisely how one responds to the ironic question, how it grabs us. Lear admits that clarifying this way of being grabbed is tricky, yet crucial, for understanding the experience of irony. Initially, Lear distinguishes two moments of this experience. First, there is the bringing out of a gap between pretense and pretense transcending aspiration. We have already seen that awareness of the gap is not sufficient to induce the experience of irony. It may provoke only non-ironic reflection. Second, there is the experience of ironic uptake that I have suggested is a peculiar species of uncanniness. Here, Lear is drawing upon Freud's famous essay, The Uncanny, in which we learn that uncanniness is the experience that something that has been familiar returns to me as strange and unfamiliar. And in its return, it disrupts my world. For part of what it is to inhabit a world is to be able to locate familiar things in familiar places. Encountering strange things, per se, need not be world-disrupting. But coming to experience what has been familiar as utterly unfamiliar is a sign that one no longer knows one's way about. This uncanniness is dramatically enhanced when what, until now, I have taken to be my practical identity strikes me as thoroughly unfamiliar. I no longer take it for granted. Of course, the ironic question on its own does not guarantee ironic uptake, the experience of irony. But when the experience does occur, it has the structure of uncanniness. The third moment that Lear specifies brings us closer to what he takes to be distinctive about the experience of irony. The experience of irony, in the paradigm case, is radically first personal. It is not only first personal, but also present tense. If the ironic question is to hit its target 
for some particular eye, there must be a peculiar first personal disruption. How the South won the Civil War, oligarchy, democracy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America, by Heather Cox Richardson, published by Oxford University Press. Heather Cox Richardson is professor of history at Boston College. Her previous works include West from Appomattox and To Make Men Free. I'll be reading an excerpt from Chapter 5, Western politics. By the end of the century, the Western individualists became the face of American democracy, thanks to historian Frederick Jackson Turner, who delivered a paper at the American Historical Association's annual meeting in 1893 that reinterpreted the nation from the perspective of the post-Civil War West. The historians had decided to meet that year at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, so the scholars would have a chance to see the great exhibits of American machinery, inventions, art, and agricultural products on display at what was popularly known as the White City after its gleaming glass and white stucco buildings. The truth is that the historians were probably more interested in the Columbian Exposition than in the work of a young scholar, so probably few of them went to hear what he had to say. Turner's parents were in town for the fair, and even they didn't go to hear him. Turner did nothing less than reinvent American history. Before him, most people who had bothered to think about the origins of their democracy had chalked it up to the intellectual principles of Thomas Paine, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and the rest of the founders. But Turner argued that it was born on the frontier, as Europeans and later Americans constructed a society on the wild edge of savagery, taming the wilderness with civilization. Turner's actors in this drama were not a few Eastern elites. They were ordinary men building democracy in the West as they tried to make a living. Turner rewrote American history to conform to the Western mythology. In reality, the West had always been characterized by a multitude of peoples who had traded with settlers as well as fought them, but Turner defined the frontier as a line between the civilization of whites and the savagery of Indians. That line gave birth to American individualism, Turner explained, as a man making a homestead in the wilderness looked only to his family and thoroughly resented any control over his actions. In that individualism lay the true roots of American democracy, Turner theorized for the land permitted men to support themselves and thus to exercise independent political power. Just a year or two after Western farmers had organized and tried to wrest control of the government out of the hands of big businessmen and give it back to ordinary citizens, Turner attributed democracy to an older time and to iconic heroes. It was not through social movements like populism that democracy was born, according to Turner, but on the frontier, crafted by individuals like Daniel Boone and Kit Carson, both of whom Turner mentioned by name. 
With its wealthy leaders and its trans-Mississippi commercial congress, the west of Turner's day looked much like the east, characterized by growing extremes of wealth and poverty. Turner ignored the modern reality and instead harked back to the ideology of the early 1800s, asserting that from the beginning, quote, America has been another name for opportunity, unquote, and had called out men's restlessness, energy, practicality, inquisitiveness, invention, and ability to effect great ends. Turner's frontier mirrored and reinforced the image of the cowboy as the quintessential individualist. It also reflected the cowboy's imagined world. Turner's thesis not only erased the multiculturalism and the mechanics of trading in the regions where cultures met, it also erased everyone but white men. In Turner's telling, much like in the vision of young America in the 1840s, slavery was an incident, and not a terribly important one at that. There were no people of color in Turner's version of the country. Enslaved African Americans lived on the fringes, and there were no free blacks. Neither were there Chinese or Mexicans. The immigrants who became Americans on Turner's frontier were Germans and Scotch-Irish. And there were no women. Turner's male individualists built their society around family, but the women in those communities were invisible. In late 19th century America, women worked, studied, labored in factories, went to college, and became teachers, writers, nurses, government clerks, and increasingly secretaries. In the West, women worked, farmed, raised money for schools and churches, and increasingly voted. They were as central to Western life as they were to society in the East. But on Turner's frontier, just as in the mythic version of the cowboy's world, the women were invisible, offstage. The wives who supported the men and nurtured the children, or the painted ladies who wore striped stockings and lived above saloons in the cow towns. The frontier carried with it individualism, democracy, and nationalism, Turner argued, qualities he and his peers associated with white men. It was the frontier that had produced the principles of the American Revolution, and which continued to preserve Republican principles pure and uncontaminated. But as the Revolution had showed so pointedly, he explained the West's power threatened more settled Eastern societies. As the frontier expanded, the communities left behind got more complex. They developed government, regulations, and taxes, and sought to control the free men in the West. Easterners tried to regulate Westerners with religion, through education, or by limiting their political rights. Westerners, in turn, resented the East, seeing its attempt at control as a threat to their freedom. In a virtual echo of early Reconstruction years, Turner noted that on the frontier, the tax gatherer is viewed as a representative of oppression. Turner claimed that the genius of American democracy had moved west after the Civil War, and their individualism still reigned. There, he said, all people became Americans, and regional peculiarities were washed away in the great tide of nationalism. Even slavery, that central rift in the country's life, had been destroyed in the West, where democracy had come fully to life. It was there, then, that America was fulfilling her true destiny. Turner's vision of the frontier and role of the West after the Civil War was a triumphant celebration of the nation, a declaration that the promise of the Founders' experiment had come to full flower. In Turner's view, this nation was different from any other. 
unlike countries in the old world, which were fully settled and where more complex societies had been established for ages, America had the landscape to continually reform democracy. The growing power of wealthy men at the moment, Turner wrote his influential article, made it more convincing, and his theory burrowed deep into the nation's ideology. Even today, when politicians talk about how America is exceptional, they are consciously or unconsciously echoing Turner's frontier thesis. While Turner summed up his generation's thinking about American democracy and the Western individual, his famous thesis was not only about triumph, rather it issued a dark warning. Turner lived in a time where large corporations were rising in the West, and he pointed out that the director of the 1890 United States Census had recently dropped a significant statistic. Noting the westward sweep of settlement, the director wrote, quote, There can hardly be said to be a frontier line any longer. The truth was that the census director was in a tearing hurry because the 1890 census had been such a complete disaster that the first director had resigned, leaving his replacement to try to cobble something together. The poor man had cut where he could. Turner, nonetheless, took the director at his word, and to him this presented a dire scenario. If democracy was continually remade on the frontier, what would happen to America if the frontier was gone? Wrestling with the Divine A Jewish Response to Suffering by Shmuley Boteak, published by Pantheon Books. Rabbi Boteak served for 11 years as rabbi at Oxford University, where he built the Oxford L'Chaim Society. He is also the winner of the highly prestigious London Times Preacher of the Year Award. His 21 books have appeared in 17 languages. These excerpts come from chapters 18 and 22. When misfortune comes our way, we are obligated to rethink our deeds and find the justice in God's ways. We know ourselves. We know that we are not perfect. And we know that at times God must come along and rectify our deeds and rectify the confused godliness within ourselves that has been damaged. We must also give God the benefit of the doubt that what is happening may indeed not be suffering at all, but has positive and beneficial consequences that may only be seen at some future time. But when something painful or sad happens to someone else, there can only be one response, to object. The authentic Jewish response to witnessing suffering of another human being is not to reconcile God with evil and postulate theodicies nor is it to assume that the person suffering is guilty and getting his reward, nor is it even to vindicate God and find reasons why God would allow such a terrible thing to happen. Rather, the only Jewish response is to scream, Wait a minute! As far as I know, this person is guiltless, so this couldn't possibly be a punishment. If it were a punishment, then it would be good. But as far as I know, this person is righteous. I know I am not. But to my knowledge, this person who is suffering is totally innocent. Therefore, his suffering is not a punishment. So far as I know, there is no ground, no reason for him to be suffering. This is not a corrective measure. So this person deserves better, and therefore I object, 
I demand that he be given a good and decent life. When a Jew sees another human being hurt, his responsibility is to challenge God and ask him how he can allow a good person to suffer. Humans are not supposed to accept the suffering of other people and assume that they deserve it. Human beings are commanded by God to alleviate suffering. If there is any possible way for us to stop suffering, then we must stop it immediately. And here we arrive at a uniquely Jewish response to suffering. From a truly Jewish perspective, there are two responses to witnessing another person's suffering, one in relation to the person's suffering and the other in relation to God. In relation to the person's suffering, the only possible response is to do something about it. Stop the suffering. Don't sit and provide the person with reasons as to why he may be suffering, or why amid his suffering he should still believe in God. Do something positive to alleviate his pain. But the challenge that must be posed to God upon witnessing another's suffering is to ask God, how could you? Any other response that tries to reconcile either why this person is bad and deserves to suffer, or why God is good and this really isn't suffering at all, is immoral. To the person who poses theodicies that posit either of the above, we ask, who are you? Did you create the world to understand what is and what isn't suffering? Are you the supreme judge of the universe that you are able to rule on the other person's guilt and hence is being deserving of punishment? And what's more, who are you to dignify death and suffering with an explanation? How great is your arrogance that you can rationalize something that has no tangible meaning? This person does not deserve to suffer, so stop giving meaning to those things that have no meaning. Once I heard a man ask Elie Wiesel why the Holocaust had happened. Wiesel gave him a perplexed look, as if he did not understand the question. The man repeated it. Wiesel assured him that he had heard the question the first time, but couldn't understand why he had asked it in the first place. Do you really want an answer, he asked him. Will it help in any way? Let's say I do provide you with an answer. Will you then sleep easier tonight? What he is saying is this. Now that you know the reason why five million Jewish adults and one million children were slaughtered, will you say to yourself, oh, well, that's a relief, I finally know. Now I can get this whole Holocaust riddle out of my head. It's been solved. But will the answer bring six million Jews back to life? Will it undo all the horror and monstrosities that Mengele perpetrated against Jewish twins? Will it end the pain of millions of children who saw their mothers and fathers alive for the last time aboard a cattle train? Who is so immoral that he can posit an answer to such perversions of justice? What we Jews want in the wake of the Holocaust should not be a divine explanation. Rather, we want all of those who suffered and perished to be restored. Whenever suffering is visited on humanity, especially when those who suffer are visibly righteous people, a terrible contradiction is posed. How can this be? There can only be two possibilities. Either the person deserved the suffering, and therefore God is just and meets out to all according to their actions, or the person did not deserve to suffer, in which case God is cruel and unjust, or powerless to prevent the suffering, or simply indifferent looking on as an unaffected spectator as humans succumb to the elements of fate and chance. To sum up, either man or God is responsible for human suffering. 
but one of the two has got to give. They simply cannot coexist. Even if God has not directly caused the suffering, he still may be held accountable for not intervening to save man. And although his intervention would deny man his freedom of choice, this is not a proper objection because, as we have explained earlier, a murderer, for example, is not punished for taking a life, but rather for the bad choice that he made. Every human being is utterly incapable of taking the life of another. A human is simply not empowered to play the role of the Creator. A person can exercise his freedom of choice by aiming a gun at another person and pulling the trigger, but who says that God cannot intervene and ensure that the trajectory of the bullet does not reach its target? And who says that even if a person is shot, the injury cannot be only minimal? In short, man can certainly exercise his freedom of choice to do evil without evil actually occurring. God can certainly intervene without man losing his freedom to choose to live like an angel or an animal. So who is responsible for the terrible pain of life and the tragedies that befall humans, God or man? One can only wonder at the degree of arrogance necessary to promote the belief that God is in need of our defense. The mind can only startle at those who are too eager to condemn man in favor of the all-powerful Creator, as if they believe that he is pleased at one human being selling out his fellow for the benefit of the Creator. There are many things that children do that will anger their parents, but one of the worst is a child expressing not unity, but rather selfishness and factionalism against his or her siblings. If my child breaks something in the house, I may not be amused, but I am far angrier if he blames it on a sibling. In the same vein, what the Almighty desires most from a collective humanity is unity. We are His children, and He wishes to see us come together as brothers and sisters, the same wish that any parent would have. Once while on holiday with my family, we took the children for ice cream. My second oldest daughter pulled her sister's hair, and I told her that I would not be taking her inside the store unless she said she was sorry. True to her obstinate character, she stubbornly refused. Good, I told her, then you'll stay in the car. Whereupon, her oldest sister, the innocent victim, suddenly began to cry that her younger sister didn't mean it and that she would not go in the ice cream store without her. It was one of my proudest moments as a father. That brings us to the end of this episode of Excellent Excerpts. I hope something has been interesting. Thank you for listening.